Christ is for everyone. A podcast about celebrating the goodness of life in the love of Christ. The Nicene Creed. What do Christians believe? Lesson 4. Christ the God-Man. This is a 10-week Bible study on the Creed that we recite every Sunday in church. Now, the, the Creed that we recite is called the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. What does that mean? Well, that means that it was a creed that uh, basically was formed and developed and perfected during two very important councils in the history of the early church. And one of those councils was at Nicaea, which is a city in uh, what we would call today Turkey. Uh, and the other council was in Constantinople. And the first council was in the year 325, so about 300 years after Christ uh, dies, we have the Council of Nicaea. And the Council of Constantinople occurred in 381. So first there's Nicaea, then there's Constantinople. Now, this creed that we, re that we recite every Sunday is called the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. And now, finally, when we get to the, the next section of the creed that begins, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. This is really where the controversy arose. All right? The Nicene Creed was crafted specifically to make these statements. Okay, so before the year 325, in the, uh, in the church, especially in the area of Alexandria and Egypt, there was a controversy between a certain priest, his name was Arius, oh, yeah. and a bishop of Alexandria named Alexander. And this Alexander was very closely related to a deacon by the name of Athanasius. Okay? So, what was the controversy? What was the big deal? There was a disagreement between these parties about how to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son, between God and Christ. And the whole controversy that arose and that led to the Nicene, uh, the Nicene Council in 325 and then to the Council of Constantinople in 381, and there are also very many other councils in between, uh, the whole controversy was whether the Father and the Son both are God, or whether the Father is God and the Son is perhaps very close to God, but something less than God. Arius, for example, thought that the Son, who came into the world, was born of the Virgin Mary, etc., Arius thought that the Son was not God did not have the divine nature. It was the first thing that God created. So this first thing that God created was a very high and exalted creature. Um, and then later, uh, in the course of history, God sent this first creature into the world in order to save humanity. Alexander and Athanasius, on the other hand, thought, no, that can't be right. The Son is not a creature. The Son was not created by God. The Son... The, the God is properly thought of as the Father, and the Father always has to have His Son. So the Father and the Son belong together, 
very closely, and there was never a time where the Son didn't exist but the Father did. Uh, they do not have different natures. It's not like the Father is one sort of thing and the Son is another sort of thing. They're both God. So this was the fundamental intuition that Alexander and Athanasius had, which differed very considerably from Arius, who thought that the Son had to be a creature because God could not have any, you know, you couldn't have composition and different parts in God, you couldn't have this distinction between the Father and the Son and so on. He thought that that didn't make any sense. So there was a whole controversy that arose because of this, um, because of this issue. And even though the Nicene Council took place in the year 325, it didn't stop there. Okay, so nowadays we talk about the Nicene Council as an ecumenical council that, you know, formally states the faith of the church and that has to be accepted and, you know, pr uh, propagates the, the true Christian faith. But it was not immediately accepted by everybody. The Nicene Council was a very important council, but there were plenty of other people who disagreed. And from the time of the Nicene Council until about the time of the Constantinopolitan Council in 381, so from 325 to 381, there was still controversy about all these things. The Nicene Council declared its position, you know, the op opposing parties had their own councils that declared their position, and there were controversies, there was polemics, there was fighting, there was even, you know, some less than honorable, uh, you know, um, ways in which these two different parties treated each other. But in the end, much later, the theology of the Nicene Council won out, and this became the majority, count, the majority theology in the church, and the other theology was eventually rejected as being incompatible with scripture and with the, with the true faith. So this is the background to our creed. Why do we say this creed every Sunday? I mean, to us, it's just something that we do. But really, it arose out of this, you know, this crucible of a, of a theological battle between two parties, multiple parties, really, about how to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son. This is what they wanted to understand. And what they say in the Nicene Creed is that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds. Here are the important statements. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. The idea with these statements was to communicate that Christ, the Son, and the Father are not two different sorts of things. Okay, so for example, I am a human being and my cat is not a human being, it's a cat. All right, the cat has a different nature than I do. Or suppose that I, you know, I write my thesis for my PhD. I am a human being and I create my thesis, but my thesis is not a human being, it's a book. Right, so it's a different sort of thing than I am. Arius thought that the Father and the Son were two different sorts of things. The Father is God, but the Son is a different sort of thing. He was created by God, he was the first thing that God created, he was the most lofty of all the creations of God, but he was still something other than God. He did not share the divine nature. He wasn't also God. Athanasius and Alexander thought, no, that can't be right. The Father and the Son are both God. They, they have the same nature. And so this is where all these statements in the Nicene Creed come from. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. All right, so the idea is that the, whatever the Father is, the Son is also. It's not that there are two different kinds of things here, like me and a book that I write, or a cat and a dog. It's one sort of thing. The Father and the Son are both God. And at the same time, these figures realize that even though they are both God, we are not talking about, the language is complicated, but we are not talking about one person. We're talking about one God, and yet somehow within this one God, we have to make a distinction between the Father and the Son. Because of course Christ, 
comes into the world, and as, I sh as, we, as we'll see, there are plenty of reasons in Scripture, there's very, many, very much testimony in Scripture that suggests the divinity of Christ. But at the same time, Christ talks about His Father. He doesn't talk only about Himself. And when He prays in the garden, for example, He prays to His Father, who is God. So we have to somehow admit a distinction within God between Father and Son. We wouldn't know about this if Christ had never come into the world, but now that Christ has come into the world, and given the way that He talks about God, we have to somehow admit that within God, there is a difference between Father and Son. And this is what the Nicene uh, Creed, this is what the Constantinopolitan Creed, this is what Athanasius and the Cappadocian Fathers and other important figures in this period of church history, that is what they were trying to communicate. That there is one God, and yet somehow in God, even this language is not totally adequate, but somehow in God, there is a distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So now, why did Athanasius, why did Alexander, why did the Cappadocian Fathers, why did they believe that the Son is also God? Why did they believe that Christ, for example, was God? Well, the answer is that we see in Scripture things that Christ does, things that He says, and also things that His disciples and apostles say about Him, which suggest that He is both God and man. And so what I want to do today in this first le lecture this first lesson, is to go over some of these passages in Scripture where the way that Christ talks about Himself or the things that He does or the way that other people speak about Him suggests that He is not only one sort of thing, right? If you, if you are talking about me, everything that you say about me is going to entail that I'm a human being, right, in some way or another. I teach at the school, I'm married, um, you know, I have a certain age, I was born in a certain part of the... Everything that you say about me is just a way of specifying my human nature, what I am as a human being. But when we see Christ in the Bible, we see that not everything that we say about Him can be true of a human being. Right? There are things that are true about Christ which are only true of God. And this will become clear as we go over some examples. But the idea is that in order to do full justice to the way that the Scripture speaks about Christ, we have to say that Christ is both God and man is both human and divine. So let's go over some of this, um, some of this scriptural evidence, and let's see some reasons in scripture why to believe that Christ is both God and man, and what difference does it make, what is important about it. Now, think back to our first, no, it was our second lesson, about the existence of God. I know you all have a perfect memory and you can remember everything that I said during that lesson. Right? Think back to my lesson about the existence of God. If you'll recall, <coughs> in that lesson I said that there is a fundamental distinction between everything else and God. Here's the distinction. God exists entirely of His own. He doesn't exist in virtue of something else. He doesn't get His existence from somewhere else. He doesn't need anything to exist. He is self-existent, as the philosophers say. Whereas everything else exists only because God causes it to exist. Alright, and so I gave this example. You can imagine that, you know, that mountain, it's there, it exists, but you can imagine that it doesn't, right? There's nothing stopping this mountain from going out of existence. Uh, we know that cats and dogs exist, but there wouldn't be any contradiction if there were no cats and dogs. At some point, there weren't any cats and dogs in the history of the world. You know, perhaps at, point some, at some point in the future, although it would be unfortunate, maybe cats and dogs will go and, you know, out of existence altogether. So we see that all these things in the world exist, but they don't have to. Okay, and because they exist and yet they don't have to, that means that they get their existence from somewhere. 
And this source of all existence, this thing that exists on its own, that has existence on its own, and that gives existence to everything else, just like, for example, a campfire gives warmth to everything else around it without being warmed by anything else, that is God. Okay, so in the Christian understanding and in the biblical understanding, there is what theologians call the creator-creature distinction. There is a fundamental distinction between the creator, God, and every sort of creature. The distinction is this. God exists on his own. He doesn't need anything. Nothing helps him. Nothing improves his life in any way. He is totally self-sufficient and self-existent. On the other hand, every creature is dependent, finite, limited, and necessarily depends on God to exist. So with this distinction in mind between creator and creature, this is very important to keep in mind because this is how Alexander and Athanasius and the rest of these figures um, interpreted scripture and especially the scriptural language about Christ. With this distinction in mind between um, the creator and the creature, they saw that in scripture we find things that are said of Christ that seem to put him on the creator side of this distinction. And there are other things that are said of Christ that put him on the creature side. So the Bible talks about Christ simultaneously as creator and as creature. And this is why we believe that Christ has two natures, a human and a divine nature. Right, so let's, this is all very abstract, but I think once we dig into scripture, it will become more clear. So let's start, uh, let's start by considering a few passages of scripture. Let's start in the Gospel of Mark. Why doesn't somebody read for us Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13? Go ahead. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, entreating him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying, paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word, my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does that. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast on into outer darkness in that place that shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does that come? Anything else? Yeah, the, the next verse. Okay, and Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, let it be done to you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very hour. Now this is what is significant about this passage. The centurion comes to Christ and he asks him, my servant is sick, please uh, heal him. And Christ says, okay, let's go to your house. But the centurion says, no, 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 I know you don't need to, okay, because I am a man under authority and I have people under my authority and I tell one guy to do this and I tell this guy to do that and he does it. You can just say the word and I know my servant will be healed. Now, out of all the people in the Old Testament who can simply say something and make it happen, who is that? Well, in the Old Testament. Jesus is not in the Old Testament. Out of all the people in the Old Testament who can simply say something 
and it happens. Who is that? It's God. What is, how does God create the world in Genesis? Does he have to do something? Does he pick, you know, Play-Doh and he opens the tab and he takes out the Play-Doh and he forms the world? He just says things and they happen. Right? This is the power of God. He simply says things and they happen. He speaks a word and the, the seas are calmed or a storm comes up. Right? He creates everything. All he has to do is say it. He utters prophecy and things take place exactly as he says. So notice, maybe this centurion did not understand exactly what he was saying. He just had a vague intuition of Christ's authority. But he says even to this, he says to the centurion, even in Israel I haven't seen enough faith. I haven't seen such faith. Even the people who are following me don't really understand what this guy understands. Because Christ, merely by speaking a word, can bring this natural world into his submission. He can cause disease to go away. He, all he has to do is say a word and he can cause disease to go away. All he has to do is speak a word and people can rise from the dead. All he has to do is speak a word and your sins are forgiven. Right, so this is a power that does not belong to Christ as a human being. This is a power that belongs to him as God. Because he can cause things to happen. All he has to do is speak it and he can cause things to happen. He is on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. Okay? Here's one way in which his all-powerful word, all he has to do is speak a word and something happens. This is a way, this is a power that only God has. Everything else only acts because, well, first of all, you know, there's something already there for me to act on. You know, I, I speak words, but that's because I have vocal cords uh, and I have an atmosphere that permits me to speak. I can, you know, pr produce vibrations in the air and you can hear what I'm saying and so on. There are all these other conditions that have to be in place in order for me to produce an effect. But Christ just has to speak the word and he can do it. All right, and that shows his power as God over the created order. He's on the creator, creator side of the creator-creature distinction. And there's another passage in Mark chapter 1. Now here, the exegesis will not be perfectly literal, but I want to just, you know, hit you with some suggestions. There are plenty of very literal and plain passages where we can see, you know, Christ described as God. But I want to, I want to try to find some hidden gems. So I'm going to read very briefly uh, some selections from Mark chapter 1, the first 15 verses or so. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, if you were just reading the Gospel of Mark, and if you didn't read also and compare these Old Testament passages which he is citing, it would not be obvious to you what's happening. But if we do read the Old Testament passages, you can see that Mark is doing something very clever. The first passage that he is citing, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. So just go back a couple pages in the Old Testament, and let's read Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Notice what God says to the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. There's a subtle difference here. In Malachi, it's a divine dialogue or a divine monologue. I will send my messenger before me. Okay? In Mark, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. So what for Malachi was a monologue, I will send my messenger before me. For Mark is now a dialogue. Somehow at the level of God, there is this discussion between these two people. 
these two figures, the Father and the Son, of course, as we would say as Christians, I will send my messenger before you to prepare your way. So there's something very interesting going on here. Whereas Malachi said, I will send my messenger before me. All Malachi knows of is God, who is going to come and return to his temple. All the ready for Mark, the situation is a little more nuanced. I will send my messenger before you. This dialogue that takes place in God, somehow, and which the prophet was privy to, suddenly there's now a distinction between I and a thou, as the philosophers say, an I and a you. I will send my messenger before you. So somehow there is this distinction, this difference between an I and a you in God, on God's side. There is an I and a you, and this you was going to be sent, and the messenger is going to prepare the way for him. But who is this you? The next passage, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Okay, so John the Baptist is coming. He is sent into the world, and he's supposed to prepare the way for God to return into the world, to return to his temple, as Malachi says. So John is preaching a baptism to prepare the way for the return of God. Now who shows up? At that time, verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. There are so many moving pieces here, it's hard to keep track of them. John is sent in order to prepare the way for the return of God. But who shows up? Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And he's baptized. And something even stranger happens when he's baptized. A voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Malachi had this vision of a messenger being sent to prepare the way for the return of the Lord. But Mark sees things a little more clearly because of course Mark is not writing these things as they're happening. He writes them after they happen. So he understands a little better. Mark sees better that whereas Malachi knew that the Lord was going to return, Mark sees that the Father sends the Son into the world. That's what the return of the Lord is. So somehow now, in God, we have to make this distinction between the Father and the Son. And the Son is this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who came and was baptized by, uh, by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. This example is a little more obscure. It's a little, a little more nuanced and, and uh, it's, it's um, difficult to keep track of all the details. Let's try again in the next Gospel, Luke chapter 5. Now, I hope that the attentive among you will realize I'm going through all the Gospels. So I'm trying to show that this is not just the teaching of one of the Gospels or of only one book in the Bible, it's everywhere. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. This is the familiar passage. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to, to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your, sons are, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, 
took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Notice the way that Christ speaks about himself and the authority that he takes to himself. He takes the authority to himself to do something that only God can do. Now, either he is a blasphemer, as the Pharisees thought, or else he, we have to take him seriously in what he's doing. And in order to prove that he's not a blasphemer, he then heals the man. So here we see very clearly Christ's self-conception. He does not believe about himself that he's merely one more person, you know, one more teacher among all the teachers of Israel, one more rabbi, one more human being. Without denying his humanity, he also has a conception of himself as the Son of God. He also understands himself to belong on the Creator side of the Creator-Creature distinction that we were talking about. And so he shows this authority when he forgives sins and furthermore he heals a person of their sickness. Now let's move to John chapter 1, verse, well, we will not read the whole thing because the prologue of John is very long and we have to keep moving. But this is another classic passage. Let's read just the first few words, the first few verses in the, in the Gospel according to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right, now notice what John here is trying to describe is exactly this distinction that I was talking about earlier. Somehow within God there is the distinction between Father and Son. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the difficulty of God's mystery, right? It's hard to find exactly the right words. One phrase is not enough by itself. You have to complement it with another phrase. So he says he was in the beginning with God, but at the same time he was God. It's not enough to say just that he was God because he was in the beginning with God. Because the way that Christ himself speaks, the way that he acts, suggests both that he is divine, that he belongs on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction, but also that there's a distinction between God, the Father and the Son. The way that Christ talks demands this, you know, this complicated way of speaking, the way that he is. In order to really you know, deal adequately with the facts in front of us, we have to have these admittedly imperfect and more complicated ways of speaking. We have to say both that the Word was with God and that the Word was God. Now, how can you be with God and God? How can somebody be with me and also be me? You know, maybe we can speak in a, in a, you know, in a loose sense of remaining with yourself, right? Staying with yourself. But that's not exactly what is going on here, right? At the same time, the Word is God and is with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Now here is, the, here is really the death blow for Arius' theology. Because Arius said that the Christ was the first creature. All right, Christ was the first creature that God made, and then through Christ, God made everything else. But John does not believe that. He says, through him all things were made, and there was nothing made that wasn't made through, through the Word. Okay, so out of everything that's made, it was made by the Word. That means the Word cannot have been made, all right, because otherwise he would be included in that set. So we see in John's, the, the prologue here to John's Gospel, that the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word made everything, and there is nothing that was made that was not made by the Word. All right, like Arius would say, that the Word himself was made. That doesn't make sense for John. Everything that was made was made through the Word. Right? The Word himself was not made by anything. And then he says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
in chapter in verse 18, no one has seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So we see here, here is another argument. So not only does John say that the Word made all things, and all things were made through the Word, therefore he's on the Creator side of the greater creature distinction. He also says that nobody's seen God. Nobody knows God. Right? This is one of the things, this is one of the points that I emphasized in my lecture on the existence of God. Nobody knows what God is. We know that he exists on his own and that he created everything, but who can say what he is? How could we possibly know what God is? Where are we going to go to find him? Where can we, you know, run experiments and try to discover what he might be like? He's inaccessible to us in that way. We cannot know what he is. If we're going to know him, he has to reveal himself. He has to make himself known. Now, how can the Word, this is the point that Athanasius makes so many times, how can the Word reveal God to us unless the Word is God? Right, for example, how can, you know, how can Rachel know me, my Rachel being my wife? How can Rachel know me unless I reveal myself, unless I say who I am and what I'm about? Can you know a person just by looking at them? Some people sometimes have the impression that they can tell who you are just by looking at you. But it's actually not true, right? At the, at the most, maybe you get lucky, you guess correctly. Your prejudices are, at least on one case, confirmed. But the truth is, nobody can know another person unless that person reveals himself. We cannot know God unless God reveals himself. So how are we supposed to know God? Well, John gives us the answer. The Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, reveals the Father to us. Now, unless the Son is also going to have the same problems that we do, he has to be God. He has to exist in this close connection so that he doesn't relate to the Father as to something totally other than him. He has to be in close connection with the Father so that he can reveal the Father to us. So once more, we see the way the Bible writers talk about Christ, the way Christ talks about himself, the things that he does, all suggest that he is on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. He's on God's side of this you know, gap, this grand canyon between the creator and the creature. He comes from over there. And yet at the same time, when we read Christ's words, he always makes a distinction between himself and his Father. He does not talk as if he is God and that's it. He says, my Father. Right? When he prays in the garden before his death, he, prays to, he doesn't pray to himself. He prays to his Father. When he talks about God, he talks about God the Father. He says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. Right? So, Christ always talks in such a way that there's a distinction between Father and Son. And yet at the same time, Christ himself comes from the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. I keep using this analogy because it's the best analogy to, to use. Christ comes from the God side of the Grand Canyon between God and the creation. And yet he speaks as if on that God side there's a distinction between Father and Son. So this was the idea in Nicene theology. In God, somehow, mysteriously to us, in God somehow there is a distinction between Father and Son. And we know this because this is the way that Christ speaks. But it's also equally important to recognize that Christ is also a human being. He's not simply God that comes here and it just looks like he's a human being, but he's not one of us also. This is the mystery of the Christian faith, that Christ is simultaneously God and simultaneously man. The Creed also says, Who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. What does it say next? and was made man. Notice, he is not always man. He was always God, but he was made man. Okay, so Christ's default state, so to speak, is as God. But on top of that, 
he became man for our sake and for our salvation. That's what we'll talk about next week. But what reason do we have to think that Christ was also a human? Now, for us, maybe this is just obvious. But for very many people in the ancient world, they thought that it was questionable to say that, God, that Christ was a human being. Because if he's God, how can he be human? They were more likely to believe that he was God than that he was human, some of them. Which is, maybe it's inconceivable to us, but for them it made sense. Now, why do they believe that he is human? Well, the Bible writers everywhere try to emphasize Christ's humanity alongside his divinity. So when you open up the Gospel according to Matthew or the Gospel according to Luke, what, is, what do you hit with first, at the very beginning? What is the first thing that appears in the Gospel according to Matthew, for example? A genealogy. Now, can you have a genealogy for God? Does God have a genealogy? Does he come from somewhere? Does he have a father and a grandfather and so on? Is he begotten by anybody? God has no father, but Christ has a father. Well, he, he has a mother, at least. <laughs> and he has a grandfather and a great-grandfather and so on and so forth. Right? Christ is an inheritor to this family. You know, for example, I was always fascinated, perhaps this is because my, my family's from Romania, but I grew up in America, and so I never had close access to my extended family. All right? So whenever I would go to Romania, I always loved to meet all my aunts and my uncles and to try to find out as much as I can about everybody and to see how, you know, how far the memory goes back, to see how the furthest generations that somebody might remember, how they might have been, and so on. I like to go to you know, my grandmother's home where she used to live in the countryside and to see the old buildings and to meet people. I will have a disinterest in the history of my family. I want to know where I came from. And I always thought it was curious if I go back a few generations and if I run into some great ancestor of mine that is dead and long gone and forgotten, maybe he looks like me or maybe he talks like me or something. And somehow, in some way, I'm carrying on this thing. It didn't just die out with him. It carries on through the generations. Well, people in the ancient world cared about this too. They cared where Christ came from. They were interested who was in his ancestry, all right, because it was theologically significant to them. And they say that in his ancestry, he has Abraham and David. These are the two most important figures. Why is that? Because Abraham was promised by God an offspring who would be the inheritor of this land that, that God promised Abraham. And David was promised by God an offspring who would always sit on the throne of Israel. So this is why, for the Bible writers, it is so critically important that Christ be a human being. Because God made promises to Abraham and to David, and those promises have to come true, and they come true in Christ. They could not do that if he was not a human being, if he did not have a human ancestry. He has to be the offspring of David, he has to be the offspring of Abraham, so that God's promises to these people can come true, and stay true for eternity. And so that's why we have, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses are all genealogical. We can consider one more case. Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. At the beginning of the chapter, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was in fact not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, interesting how he calls Christ the Lord. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. 
Notice the way that John talks about Jesus. He's on this long journey. He's trying to avoid problems with the Pharisees and the, the other figures. He's taking this, you know, backwards path in order to avoid being caught. In the middle of the day at noon, he's hot and he's tired. He's hungry and he's thirsty. So he takes a rest by as well while his, you know, his disciples go and get food for him. Does God need any of that? Does God need to rest? Does he get hot? You know, if, does God leave Arizona during the summer because it's too hot for him? <laughs> right? Does he get hungry? Does he get tired? Does he get exhausted from journeying? No. Christ suffers all these things, which shows that he's a human. He's subject like us to all the limitations that we're subject to, except sin. That's the one qualification that the epistle to the Hebrews makes. So the way that the Bible writers talk about Christ, he's a human being. He also gets tired at midday, right, when it's the hottest and the sun is beating down on your head. And, you know, I have less and less hair on my head these days. So when Rachel and I went to the Huntington Library in Pasadena, I came home and I was pink here up at the top. You know, it's like I had a, a pink uh, crown on my head from the sunburn. Right? He gets hot. He gets tired. He needs somebody else to go get food for him because he's too tired. He can't move anymore. He needs somebody else to draw water for him because it's just really hot. These are human limitations. These are limitations that show that Christ was a human just like us. He was not only a human, just like us, but he was also. This is the, the paradox of it. Although he was God, he was also a human just like us and subject to all the limitations of our humanity. Now, the most important limitation of our humanity to which Christ is subject is what? What do you think? What do you think is the most important limitation that we have and that Christ also had to be subjected to? He can't look into the future at all. Well, he can't look into the future, that's, that's true. But the one I'm looking for is death. Okay. That's the important one. Okay. All right, all flesh is like grass. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It dies. I think about this a lot. I don't know why, but around the time I started to get closer to 30 years old, I started to think more and more about dying. I don't know why it happens. That's how it goes. Right? I just think about death. I think about the fact that at some point I'm going to die or that it could happen at any moment. You don't know when it happens. Christ dies. This is the most important thing. Paul says to the Corinthians, I chose to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Christ dies. He dies for our sins, according to the Scriptures, as Paul says later on in the epistle. He dies. This is not something that God does. God does not die. Can anything kill God? Paul says in the letter to Timothy, Christ, God who is alone, immortal, invisible, dwelling in inapproachable light, alone, immortal, everything else dies. Why is that? Because we depend on God for our existence. And at some point, like Scripture says, He withdraws His Spirit. And the, the closing words of, of Ecclesiastes are so wonderful. The cord is cut, the golden bowl is shattered, you know, things stop. It's over when, when God withdraws His Spirit. Christ had to be subjected to that also. This is the most important thing for the earliest Christians. He had to be able to die. He had to be truly human like the rest of us. He had to be able to die. This is why John says, for example, in 1 John chapter 4, that anybody who denies that Christ came in the flesh is an antichrist. Because if Christ did not come in the flesh, then he doesn't die. How can you die if you don't have flesh? But if you have flesh, then you depend on something else for your life, and it can be taken away from you, and you can die. And of course, Christ came... Why does, why does Christ say that he came? He came not to be served, but to serve. And how does the rest of the line go? And to give his life as a ransom for many. 
This is what he came into the world for. He does not die as God, because of course the divine nature cannot die. But he has to be capable of dying, because this is why he came, to die for our sins. And so therefore he has to be a human, truly human. He has to have even this most unfortunate part of our life as human beings, the fact that eventually we die. And that it, not only that it eventually happens, but that at any moment it could happen. Christ has to be subject to death. So, this most important part of our life as human beings, the fact that it can come to an end at any moment and that eventually it does, Christ himself is subjected to this. This is a proof that he is not only God, but he is also a real human being, like the rest of us. He suffers, he gets hungry, he's tired, he has limits, he can only do so much, and then at the end he dies. People can take his life from him, or he can give up his life, but he can die. So, on the one hand, we have these, this strange combination of descriptions about Christ. On the one hand, the Bible speaks about him as if he's God, as if he comes from the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. But on the other hand, there are all these things that happen to him and the ways that he's described as if he were just a creature like the rest of us. And the truth is that in Christ we have, this is what the doctrine of the Incarnation is about. We have two natures. We have the divine nature and the human nature. According to his divine nature, Christ can speak a word and it happens instantly. According to his divine nature, everything was created through Christ, through the Word of God, through the Logos. But according to his human nature, he gets tired. He gets hungry, he needs somebody else to go get food for him because he can't get up anymore, he can't walk anymore. And according to his human nature, he also dies. And his hands are pierced with nails, and the blood comes out of him, and it stops at some point. His life stops. So we see in Christ, this is, this is the, the, the most impressive thing, this is the, the tremendous mystery of Christianity, that in Christ, in this person Christ, we have a meeting point, a touching between these two extremes, the Creator and the creature. Christ is the Creator, He's from God, He's consubstantial with God, He's of the same being of the, as the Father, and at the same time He's like one of us, and He suffers and He dies. So in Christ we have this meeting between two worlds, which normally seem so far apart. What we see here, you know, what, what is available to us, to our senses, what we can easily think about is the created world. God is this invisible creator that everything exists in virtue of him, but we can't, you know, seem to touch him or to feel him or to get very close to him. And yet somehow in Christ these two worlds blend. They blend is not a theologically ideal word, but they come together. He has a human nature and a divine nature. He is God and he is man. He is the word. And at the same time, he's the son of David and the inheritor of the promised Abraham. So this is really what is the, the center, the heart of the Nicene Creed. This, these next, this middle section here about Christ. The only begotten Son of God, begotten not made, begotten of his Father before all worlds, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was made man. This is the heart of it. That in Christ you have both worlds, God and man, in one. In a single person you have both natures, both worlds. Now why is this important? Are you talking about the hypostatic union? Yes, that's the, the theological term is the hypostatic yes. union. Very good. Uh -huh. So, now why is this important? Why does it matter? There are a lot of reasons why. I have enough minutes to tell you one reason. <laughs> right? And I will share a story from one of my favorite theologians, Thomas F. Torrance. Thomas F. Torrance was a very significant theologian in the Scottish Reformed Church. He was born in China to missionary parents, and then at some point in his youth, they moved back to Scotland, and then he became a famous theologian and a professor at the, I think, at the University of Edinburgh. 
Now, during the war, he was in the continent, the European continent, and he was there as a chaplain, and he recounts the story on a few different occasions of when a soldier who was dying was talking to him as the chaplain, and he said, the soldier says to him, Padre, is Jesus really like God? Now, this is an interesting question, because in this soldier's you know, perhaps theologically unsophisticated understanding, Jesus sounded like a nice guy, but God was this mysterious figure. He didn't know how, what sense to make of them. Jesus is really nice. I can believe in Jesus. He, he sounds like he would accept me. But God, I don't know. <laughs> right? I don't know about God. This is what Thomas Torrance says is the significance of the Nicene Doctrine. There is no God behind the back of Jesus. There's no other God. Jesus is the only God. And if you can see that Jesus loves you with all of your heart, well, that's the sign that God loves you with all of his heart. It's not as if Jesus is someone, you know, merely between God and the human being, and there's this distance, and Jesus sounds really nice. You know, just like, for example, one parent can be nice, but the other parent maybe isn't. Or, you know, your immediate supervisor at work may be a nice guy, but the CEO is a real jerk. Right? There's nothing like that. When you're dealing with Jesus, you're dealing with God. God is here right in front of you. There on the cross. Dying for your sins, that's God. That is not merely a human being sent by God, that is God. He dies in his human nature, he doesn't die in his divine nature, but it's God dying, the Son dying. The person who declares the forgiveness of sins to that paralytic man is not merely a human prophet who was sent into the world and you know, did very impressive things. It was God saying that. Imagine God saying to you, your sins are forgiven. When the priest tells it to you, you know, if you're a, a, a faithful and pious Anglican, you believe it with your heart. But when God tells you your sins are forgiven, there's no, there's no doubt, room left for doubt. There's nothing left to doubt. When God himself comes into the world and dies for our sins, you know, the Thomas, uh, Thomas Torrance cites from another Scottish theologian, uh, Samuel Rutherford. He says, Christ loves us more than he loves his own life because he gave his life in order to win us. So how can, how can you be afraid of anything? How can anything bother you? How can you fail to trust in God when he himself is willing to die for you? That's the significance of Nicene dogma. It puts God as close to us as possible in order that we can trust Him and we can live in faith of, uh, in Him.